Mark's Gospel, chapter 8 this evening, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us this evening and you don't have a Bible, just flag one of the gentlemen that are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and they'll uh, give you a Bible marked to our passage this evening. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord uh, to you today. In those days, the multitude, being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called His disciples to Him, and He said to them, so picture a multitude before Jesus, and we remember this is the final uh, year of Jesus' three-year public ministry, and uh, this is known as the year of His popularity uh, leading up to His crucifixion. So a great multitude is there. Uh, following Jesus, and He declares to the disciples after calling them to Him, and He said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with Me three days and have nothing to eat. Now, that tells us a great deal about this multitude. Uh, no matter how many came, I mean, here they are, they've been following Jesus for three days listening to His teaching. And probably uh, the most anybody kind of went out of the door uh, of their house hearing Jesus is somewhere in the neighborhood and let's go hear him teach. They probably had a couple of bologna sandwiches and a, a jello or something, you know. So that's long been spent. And uh, Jesus recognizes their hunger for his word, their willingness. I mean, you think about our own appetite for the word of God. I want this to challenge me. But, uh, uh, you know, would I uh, uh, eat the two sandwiches at 10 o'clock in the morning and the jello at 11, and then at uh, 2 o'clock in the afternoon say, no, this isn't worth hanging around for? And it gives us the idea that these people stuck around for three days to listen to Jesus' teaching and, uh, and not allowing uh, hunger in the course of those three days to move them at all uh, from continuing to hear him teach. I don't know what's going to happen in heaven. I don't know how clear, uh, uh, you know, lots of things are going to be much clearer for us there than they are here. I think we're going to understand the Scriptures in a way that uh, we, we c c never uh, can in, in this life at all, but I, I do hope that Jesus does some teaching in heaven. And uh, we get to see how the volume of the book testifies of him. It really would be something to uh, have listened and heard what it is that they, they heard him teaching. We're thankful for the Gospels, of course. So he says, I have compassion on the multitude. His heart went out to them. He, he realized they had spiritual needs but physical needs as well because they've continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own homes in this state, they, there's the potential that they're going to faint, some of them, uh, on the way home. They, uh, for some of them had come uh, from afar. They had come quite a distance. And then the disciples, as Jesus uh, declares His desire to, uh, to feed them, the disciples answered Him and said, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? I mean, there's no... Um, hostess outlet or uh, any kind of a place we can go and get food for these people. We're out in the middle of nowhere, and you're talking about feeding them. And 
those of you who have been with us in the recent weeks, we realize that all of this is happening in what is known as the feeding of the 4,000 after Jesus had even recently uh, fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And so they're just like completely drawing a blank. It's like, it's like the feeding of the 5,000 never happened. And in fact, this is so inconceivable uh, to many who, who call themselves Bible scholars and, and uh, uh, theologians, that they've come to the conclusion that Jesus' feeding of the 4,000 here is simply a repetition of the feeding of the 5,000 with a few facts kind of mixed up. Because it is inconceivable to them in the, in the way that they look at things that Jesus could have fed the 5,000 with the five loaves, two fishes, so recently in their history, and then forget about it, and then now facing the feeding of a multitude uh, that Jesus describes as the desire to do so, and, and for them to then uh, address this with Jesus as if the other miracle had never occurred. And when people express uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, the unbelief that, that this could be two different miracles, I don't laugh at the disciples. I laugh at anybody that could believe that. I mean, what Christian? I'll speak of myself. But what of us, any of us as Christians don't have these places within our lives where we come to this gigantic trial that God is calling us to do something that we have no ability to do in our own strength. And here we are facing this situation. And the, and the first thing that we do, we begin to conduct ourselves as if we have never been here before in our history with God. When we've been here before at least once and usually multiple times. This is not an indication that there's some oddity I think this is something that happens to all of us, and it's one of the great lessons of the passage, and I think it's one of the reasons you say, why in the world would he uh, include, as he does in every gospel, the account of the feeding of the 5,000, then why would he include the account of the feeding of the 4,000 except to remind us and to teach us a lesson about how often we can face things in our Christian life that God, we've already faced earlier in our Christian life and navigated by the grace of God, and then when we hit the very same thing again, it's as if we've never been here before, as if we have no experience or history with God in a trial like this before. I won't ask for an amen for, or a showing of hands for any of you that would put yourself in my shoes. I found myself there in the past. I don't like it about myself. But very often when a great demand is put before me, my first inclination is to begin to respond to it as if this is the very first time. And then what is required is, as the Lord does with the disciples here, is to just pull back a little bit, remember the history that I have with God. We have been here before, haven't we? And didn't I take care of you in this very similar situation over and over again in the past? And what did we do? And what happened there? And what I was to you then in that circumstance, I will be to you again. 
I will be happy to be in heaven one day and be completely done uh, with this side of, of myself. And I know I'm not alone uh, within this room. In fact, I'm getting names right now. Just stand as I call, uh, call names out here. Now, we all recognize this. You, know, you stop and think about it in your own Christian life. If you've walked with the Lord for years or a significant block of time, I mean, there is, what, what percentage of trials do we face in the Christian life that are absolutely brand new to us? It's the very first time. We have never, ever faced anything like this before. I don't say that it doesn't happen. It happens all of the time. But I'm saying, what is the percentage? The overwhelming majority of things that we face, impossible circumstances in our lives, are circumstances that we have faced over and over and over again in our Christian history. And, and, uh, and then to, to stop and to, and to fall back upon that, the long history that I have uh, with God. No, no, this is, <laughs> this is the feeding of the 4,000 is included in the gospel according to Mark uh, and Matthew's gospel as well for very, very good reason. And it, and it represents two entirely different uh, miracles of a similar vein that Jesus accomplished, but it simply it, it exposes us for what we are a good portion of the time, uh, many of us, and, uh, and then uh, exhorts us to, to pull back and, and think about, uh, this is not my first rodeo here with the Lord, and so what do we do? And so the disciples, again, verse 4, answered him, how uh, can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And so this is different than the feeding of the 5,000 and the number of loaves that are there. And in uh, and the, and, and the feeding of the 5,000, to me, the single great lesson of the feeding of the 5,000 is they're counting up their five loaves and two fish and all of this and, and, and thinking uh, that, and forgetting that the single great resource, the single greatest resource that we have as Christians in any impossible situation we find ourselves in is not our resources, uh, but it is the Lord who is with us. And uh, so Jesus, he guides them through, asks them, how many loaves do you have? They inform him, uh, seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took then the seven loaves, and he gave thanks to God for them. And, and he broke them, and he gave them then to the disciples to set before uh, the multitude. Again, God does what only he can do, but he uh, has us do what we're capable of doing and participating here in the miracle. And, and they set the... the bread before the multitude, and they also had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said uh, to set them uh, before the people as well. And so uh, the, the multitude ate, and they were filled, the same thing, glutted. They couldn't eat any more. And uh, the disciples then took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. And those who were, uh, had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. There is a, uh, at this time in Jesus's public ministry, he is kind of on the edge of the border of Israel and then Gentile territory. Uh, many people believe, and I'm one of them, that this particular miracle of the feeding of the 4,000 was not only different in terms of, 
of, of the timing of it, uh, the 4,000 versus 5,000 and how many uh, loaves and fish there were before and all of that. But even in terms of uh, the, the Greek language that is used to describe the baskets that uh, full that were left uh, a- after the, the miracle. In the feeding of the 5,000, there were 12 baskets full of food that was then gathered up and, and taken away. God doesn't waste anything, not even a miracle. And, and in the feeding of the 5,000, the, the Greek word that is used for baskets there, it refers to uh, the baskets that the Jews used. And it was a smaller basket than a Gentile basket. And the Jews' baskets were smaller for the simple reason that they were wide at the base, but then they came into kind of a narrow neck. And they did that in order to, you know, there's a certain amount of hygiene related to that, but so that their foodstuffs would not be made ceremonially unclean as they would make their way from the market or wherever through a Gentile territory. The word that is used here... It speaks about a very wide, flat basket that was used by the Gentiles. The Gentiles had no concern about being ceremonially unclean or anything. They're just thinking bread or whatever, you know, they, they put on the, on the basket. There's no concern uh, for them at all. And uh, it's the same word that is used for in, uh, in uh, Acts chapter 19 when Paul, following his conversion, was lowered in a basket from the city of uh, Damascus in order to make his escape from the persecution that was going on there. So a good-sized, uh, a good-sized uh, basket. And so Jesus feeds them, sends them away so they can uh, head home safely with their hearts filled with the Word of God, but also uh, their, their belly and, and, uh, and physical appetites uh, in terms of food being met. And uh, immediately, uh, uh, Jesus got into the boat with His disciples, and He came to the region of uh, Dalmanutha. And then the Pharisees then came out and began to dispute with Him. Uh, seeking from him a sign from heaven, uh, testing him. So what they want from him is a miracle, for him to perform a miracle that will convince them uh, that he is the promised uh, Messiah. Uh, the pro- and so the problem is, is that they had miracles enough Uh, They had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of evidences and miracles to the fact that Jesus was the promised Jewish Messiah and the promised Savior of the world. In His first coming, He fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies. And again, as we've seen in terms of the land of Israel from the north to the south to the east to the west, it was filled with lepers who had been cleansed of their leprosy. Uh, the, uh, the people had been uh, healed of their diseases. People had been raised from the dead. The whole country was, uh, w- was uh, uh, absolutely jammed with people uh, who had been impacted by the power of Jesus. There was a 400-year period of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. When Jesus came on the scene, God made sure there was a period of four years, uh, four, uh, 400 years in which nothing of this sort was happening uh, at all that's recorded for us at all, so that when Jesus came onto the scene, they would realize that God is in our midst of a truth, that this is the Messiah, and that is the conclusion they ought to have come to on the basis of all of these things. And so they come with him with, with the 
uh, with unbelief, and they come not with an honest heart. You notice the word dispute. Uh, they're looking for a fight uh, uh, with him, and, and they're determining, in essence, telling him, we will not believe that you are the Messiah unless you do a miracle that satisfies us individually, you know, for, for putting our faith in you. Jesus' response is uh, both physical uh, and, and verbal. His physical response is, but he sighed deeply in his spirit. He didn't just sigh. Mark is careful to tell us that he sighed deeply. Imagine Jesus. He's standing before these Pharisees. They make this demand of him in the light of everything that Jesus has done. And all he can do before he even says a word is sigh. And I, I have to believe that he sighs even to this day that there's even one single person in Modesto or in Ripon or in Turlock, or in the entire world that has not believed Him to be the Jewish Messiah and the Savior of the world in the light of the life that He lived, His teaching, the miracles, and the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Uh, it, it, it is, it is unfathomable though, in heaven that people would not believe in the light of the evidence that God has uh, provided. And he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Uh, verily, verily, I say to you, no sign shall be given uh, to this uh, generation. And so he refused to give them a sign uh, of their uh, choosing. Now, this is not saying that we should not seek God for a miracle in our life anytime we meet a, need a miracle. That is not being disparaged in any way. Again, what we have here is a group of people, and it's true of anybody that would do this, a group of people who are endeavoring to make signs or miracles the foundation or the basis of their faith, specifically in Jesus as the Messiah, as opposed to accepting the great foundation for that truth that God has provided to us, and that is the greatest miracle of all in human history, and that is the witness of the prophetic Scriptures of the Old Testament to, concerning Messiah that Jesus fulfilled. The Word of God and they tried to pull Jesus into this. If you just give us a miracle, then that will be enough for us. The problem with miracles is that they never satisfy. I mean, if God were to conf confirm in giving us a miracle of some kind, and every time we got into a pinch or a question, that, that within five minutes of it occurring, we'd wonder, I wonder if that just happened. And I, I wonder if, well, it's probably this and this and these circumstances came together, and a sign will never, ever satisfy uh, in that way. And if the Word of God, the witness of the Word of God, and the witness of the gospel concerning Jesus' life will not convince a person that Jesus is the Messiah and convince them to put their faith in Him, then no miracle that I can come up with as a, a, as a, a foundation for my faith in Christ will ever satisfy because the Word of God and the life of Christ is the greatest miracle that can ever be provided. But it's the miracle that God has provided. 
We're not free to choose our own miracles. Sometimes people feel that they are. They'll stand up at a, a family gathering or in some classroom at a university or whatever and, and uh, deny the existence of God and declare, God, if you exist, then, you know, smite me dead on the spot. And um, I've, I've been in that, in, uh, seen that a couple times in my Christian life. And, and I'm just saying, oh, Lord, that would be so awesome. <laughs> just once. And now everybody's filming everything on their phone, and this, this would be, the humbling of this kind of arrogance would be fabulous. And the Lord just disregards it, and, and He goes on, uh, on about His business. And He never meets them there, and the person goes away thinking that they have proven that, that God doesn't exist when uh, all, all they've, uh, all they've experienced is what Jesus causes the Pharisees to experience here, and that is that He's not going to give us some weak, flimsy, nothing demand of our own for faith when the greatest uh, uh, foundation for faith has already been uh, provided uh, to us. So we think, all right, if I just had this miracle, and sometimes we can even do it as Christians. God, if you, you know, I'm in this pinch, and if you do this, then I'll really know that you love me or whatever uh, it might be, but it never works. And, and, uh, and so here, you know, if, if I reject the, the more powerful witness of God's Word and, and for some miracle of, of my own choosing as a basis for my faith, my faith will inevitably, uh, it will fall uh, through the rough and tumble uh, of life. It will not hold up, and God knows that it's, it's not a, a satisfactory foundation uh, for faith. It's perfectly fine. Signs, wonders, miracles, all, as many as God wants to do, but not as, a, a, as the foundation for our faith uh, in Jesus. I think Jesus' word to, uh, in speaking the story about Lazarus and the rich man in Luke chapter 16 is very significant in this, uh, this regard. And, uh, and, and Jesus declared, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he fared sumptuously every day. So this is introduction to the rich man. It's interesting, people talk about it being the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, but there's no indication that it's a parable at all. Jesus tells it as a story, uh, as if people already knew both of these characters, and Jesus was telling, uh, uh, giving them insight into what had happened at the end of their life. And so you've got this rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, fared sumptuously every day, and there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate and uh, uh, desiring to be fed with just the crumbs that would fall from the rich man's table. The only comfort he had in life was when dogs would come up and, and lick his, uh, his wounds, his sores. And so it was that the beggar died and was called by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man died and, and also and was buried. And being in the torments in Hades, the rich man lifted up his eyes, and he saw Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham. And he cried out, and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I'm tormented in this flame." And Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all of this, between us there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. And the rich man here for our purposes tonight, he made this request. He said to Abraham, 
He said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send uh, uh, Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they should come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, that is the witness of the Old Testament Scriptures. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And then Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And, and, and that is the flimsiness of even the greatest miracle of someone rising from the dead as a basis uh, uh, for, uh, for our faith. And I, I don't know, maybe most of us have, if we've walked with the Lord for a while, uh, asked, you know, for God to give us a sign of some kind and, and, uh, uh, as an evidence of His love or His involvement in our life and the depth of some particular trial that, that we're in or a crisis of faith. And, and then He doesn't do the miracle. And what does He do? He always forces us back to the Word of God and to claim and, and to go to the Word of God and say, what does the Word of God say to a Christian in this situation? and in this pickle? And what is God's promise to a Christian in this situation? And then we take hold of that promise, and we build our life and our faith upon that. And He continually forces us to do that, because it's the surest thing uh, that, that we can uh, build, build our faith uh, upon, not some miracle that He might uh, that he might uh, give to us. And then Jesus, uh, he left them, got into the boat, and departed then uh, to the other side. And, uh, and the, uh, the disciples, as they get into the boat, they had forgotten to take bread. Oh boy, who was in charge of that? And uh, can you imagine where it's like, oh no, who forgot the bread? And, uh, but they, they forgot to take bread uh, to eat on the journey. And uh, they didn't have more than one loaf with them in the boat. So you're talking about 13 guys, and they're all pretty young. Uh, so a loaf of bread can go pretty quickly. And uh, that's all they've got is less than a loaf. And uh, then Jesus charged them, saying, uh, while they're all got this inner turmoil about, about oh, no, we're going to we didn't bring any bread. And what happens when Jesus says it's time to eat? Ah, uh, you know. And, uh, and then Jesus then, on top of this, he, he just uh, naturally, he charged them, and he said to them, take heed and beware of the leaven. Uh, and leaven reminds them of the bread now. Beware of the leaven of uh, the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, it's because we have no bread. He's talking secret talk to us about leaven and uh, we didn't have any bread here, and so they're all concerned that they're busted. And Jesus, being aware of it, there's nothing that He's not aware of, including our uh, secret conversations with one another or within our own heart. And He said to them, why do you reason that I told you this because uh, you have no bread? Why would you think that I'm talking supremely about bread as if uh, that's a disaster for us? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And uh, do you not remember? 
how it is when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full uh, of fragments did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And also when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. And so he said to them, how is it that you do not uh, understand? What Jesus is warning them about and warning them about the leaven of the Pharisees uh, Matthew's gospel enlarges it to include uh, warning against the leaven of the Sadducees, and then here in Mark's gospel we get the full uh, trinity of, of the warning in terms of leaven when uh, Mark records for us that he warned against the leaven uh, of Herod as well. In, uh, in the Bible, uh, leaven, which is yeast, it, it always represents sin. It, it always represents corruption. And, uh, uh, and because yeast and, and sin operate the same way, when you add yeast into any kind of uh, uh, big plump of dough, there's a proper word for that, but plump will do uh, for the moment, um, it'll come to me just before I fall asleep tonight. Uh, lump of dough, thank you. Drop the P. So you've got this lump of dough and you put a little bit of leaven in it and then pretty soon, it, 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 and leaven is a corruption. It's a corrupting influence and it then uh, leavens or yeasts the entire loaf and thus the loaf will uh, puff up as it, as it uh, is, is baked and so forth. The same thing when sin is introduced, even in the smallest amount into our lives, it never remains small. It always is the introduction of corruption into our life that if it's allowed to remain, it will permeate our entire life. It will permeate our entire uh, uh, Christian life and even affect and influence our relationship with God. So he's warning them against uh, three kinds of leaven, three things that are uh, absolutely dangerous to us individually but also dangerous to the body of Christ. He's speaking to the disciples. They're going to be, they're the apostles. And so they need to be aware that these three things are a, a corrupting influence in the kingdom of, of God if you're not aware of them. The leaven of the Pharisees, the Pharisees were the legalists of their day. And the leaven of the Pharisees was legalism. And the legalist is the person who takes the Word of God, the commands of God, takes it very, very seriously. But then they make this, uh, the, the serious mistake of believing that they can improve upon the boundaries of God's commandments. And they conclude, uh, they then decide to take the very simple, clear commands of God and then make them actually harder or more demanding than God has made them. That's the leaven of, of the Pharisees. That's legalism in the body of Christ. The Sadducees were the theological liberals of their day, and uh, the leaven that they represent is, is the leaven of explaining away uh, the demands of, of Scripture and the demands of the Word of God and uh, saying that these things don't have to believe, they don't have to uh, be obeyed. And, and we look at, uh, look at the body of Christ today. If you, I mean, if you stay uh, current w with it at all, uh, in terms of what is the kingdom of God and what claims to represent the God of the Bible in the world today, and think about how much of it is marked by, I, I couldn't put a percentage on it, but it's very large, how much of it is represented, Christianity is represented today by legalism, 
on the part of Christians, making it more demanding, adding our own traditions, our own ideas to the Word of God, and then also by theological liberalism, where look at how many people today. I mean, you see how much this is, the, this is the blob that's eating St. Louis right now in terms of Christianity, the idea that we can come to this book and come to God on our own terms, accept what we want, throw out what we don't want. I mean, there's no fear of God in, in that kind of, a, of an attitude at all. And, uh, but this is, this is prevalent on both ends of, of the extreme. And then he warns about uh, this leaven of, uh, of Herod and, uh, and the, the danger, the corruption that that brings to uh, the, the body of Christ and the kingdom of God. Now, the Herodians were a group of Jews in Jesus' day, and uh, they supported the Roman-appointed Edomite family of Herod. And they viewed Herod as kind of the best hope for uh, fixing the problems that the Jews were facing at the time in, in what was a very Rome-dominated uh, world. And so they were Jews who pinned uh, their hopes for the future, uh, not on God supremely, and, and not on religion, but supremely upon government and upon uh, politics. And so the Herodians were uh, those who kind of mixed politics and they mixed uh, religion. And I, I think the best way to uh, describe the leaven of the Herodians is, is bad politics. Uh, and it would seem that for a Christian, there is something that's uh, considered to be a good political involvement, and then there is bad political involvement. Good political involvement includes voting, and it includes uh, any other right that we possess as Christians in our nation where we can be a salt and light and an influence for righteousness and morality within, within the, the society. Uh, good politics includes running for office, uh, a political office, if the Lord leads us to do that and to then occupy that particular position as a servant of, of the Lord first and in order to be an influence for the kingdom of God in this environment that I have been uh, elected into. Famously in the Old Testament, Joseph and Daniel, uh, two, uh, two characters in the Old Testament about whom, and the only two, I believe, about whom nothing bad is said. And yet God put them in high levels of, of government, uh, one with Pharaoh in Egypt and then the other in the Babylonian uh, empire in order to be an influence uh, for God in, in, in that, that environment. In good politics, the Christian never pins his or her hopes on secular man or uh, government as the ultimate solution to man's problems. And, uh, and, and never thinks that the health and the advancement of the kingdom of God is dependent upon uh, secular man or upon, uh, upon government. But they do recognize that as God has given us rights, as He's given us opportunities, or as His leading, He leads us to be an influence for Him in that arena, we should do that knowing that we're cooperating with Him to be that influence under, under His plan for our life. Bad politics, and now this comes to the leaven that we have to be careful of uh, today. Uh, have you noticed that our country's fairly divided politically? I mean, yeah, ready to go to a civil war all over again. I don't know how it'll uh, pan out, but it's, it's quite a time. 
and, uh, and, uh, and a lot of it is over spiritual and moral uh, issues. But, so the warning is, is very, very uh, timely. Bad politics occurs when a Christian views a man or government to be, again, the ultimate solution to the problems of man or, or even the problems of God's people. Bad politics occurs when we view the solutions to the problems of our city or our nation or our world to be more political rather than spiritual. Every problem that a nation has in any nation within the world, uh, to really address it at its core, you have to take it all the way back into uh, there will always be a spiritual and a moral component uh, at the core of it where some mere uh, 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 moral or spirituality of God is, is being violated and there's problems that occur as a result of it. Bad politics occurs when a, a Christian or a church or uh, Christians in a community or a nation become so identified, not involved with politics, but identified with politics that we now are viewed more as a political movement uh, in the world as opposed to a spiritual movement. And not just large groups of people, but to, to speak to our individual hearts here uh, tonight on, on this issue. And, and it requires us as leaders and individual Christians uh, that, uh, that we look at things and, and when we do enter into subjects that are considered to be political within our culture, that we make sure that we are being clear as we speak about it that here is the spiritual and here is the moral issue that is at the core of this situation. That's what we're standing for and not some uh, political party uh, necessarily. Uh, I, very often when we're talking about the problems that are going on uh, in the world, and for us as Christians, our eyes are opened. We see the spiritual implications. We see the violation of God's commandments that are creating all of these kind of problems. And then to talk to people and bring them back to, this is what it's all flowing out of here. And that's why when we violate God's Word in, in this issue, this is what you end up with, even in the most uh, wealthy nation in, in the whole world. And it actually represents, if we will not you know, become liberal or conservative, uh, so to speak, or primarily on the issue, but to use this as an opportunity to share about morality uh, from a biblical standpoint, it gives us great opportunity uh, to share God's truth and and, and, his, uh, and his, his wisdom. And it also requires us as individual Christians to speak uh, more often and more passionately concerning the kingdom of God uh, before our friends and our family and our co-workers and our fellow students than, than the latest issue that's being uh, discussed on uh, news television or, or talk radio. Bad politics occurs when we are representing God as being for or against issues that he really isn't concerned about at all or the scriptures are silent about. Bad politics occurs when Christians kind of hitch their wagon to someone who is a as corrupt and as ungodly as the family of Herod because they uh, have the power to get something done that we feel needs uh, to be uh, done. And then our uh, our name, when they go down, our name gets brought into it as well. 
Bad politics is when a Christian forgets that we're a, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven first and a citizen of the nation that we live in uh, second. Bad politics occurs when a person gets uh, in, in, uh, evolved into politics and then lose that, that quiet heart of faith. We become uh, aggressive. We become angry. Uh, we lose our temper in talking with people. We become openly agitated with people as we're discussing uh, the issue. Uh, in other words, uh, we end up not looking any longer at all like uh, how Jesus conducted himself and, and in situations that are far more volatile than anything that we're, we're facing uh, today. And when we do that, then we, we no longer represent the nature uh, of Jesus. And there are a lot of things that are, are like that. And I j just sufficient to say in, in the current environment, and I'm not against, I, when I was in junior college, I was a political science major. Uh, the whole field fascinates me. Uh, it's its own kind of war and its own kind of, of battle. And, uh, and the war that's being waged is a serious one uh, of that, that kind. And uh, so I get the appeal. I have my own opinions about uh, all of these uh, kind of things, but uh, so important to, to realize there is a leaven of Herod to where people can hear me talking about these issues or politicians or these propositions is the answer to our problems more than I would ever talk to them about God and about God being the answer to those problems and, and the situations. And things get turned upside down and, uh, uh, very, very, uh, very, very easily. And uh, otherwise, we can find ourselves infected with this leaven of Herod and, uh, and uh, in this, uh, in unified with the political systems of the day supremely, and, uh, and then uh, tragically identified uh, with them in, in the minds of, uh, of the lost. So vital that we don't do anything in this world that yokes uh, Jesus with anything that is uh, corrupt. And so when you, when you look at these three leavens, the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Sadducees, and the leaven of Herod, now you just stop and think about how timely the warning is. And you ask yourself again, what, what percentage of the body of Christ, uh, talking about Christians, real Christians, on their way to heaven, talking about us in this room uh, today, but what percentage of the body of Christ is corrupting how the world views the kingdom of God on the basis of legalism, liberalism, and an unhealthy identification and dependence upon politics to fix the problems of the world. And I, and I would say that you will have to search very, very hard to find uh, churches that keep themselves free from those particular leavens. And the tragedy of it is that it is a comparatively small section. I don't know what the size is, but it's smaller than it should be. A comparatively smaller section of the body of Christ that is apt actually representing the kingdom of God before the lost of the world on a daily basis 
on the basis of not being wise and careful about these three things. It is as, as necessary a warning and, and an encouragement as, as ever it was 2,000 uh, years ago. And then uh, Jesus came into Bethsaida, and they uh, brought a blind man to him, and they begged him to touch him. Of course, the idea of touching him to heal him. And so Jesus took the blind man by the hand. It's just beautiful, isn't it? And he's a blind man, and he takes him by the hand. He's going to lead him, let him out of the town. So he's going to deal with the man privately, not in the middle of this big, big crowd. And, uh, and when Jesus had spit on his eyes, I, I don't know all about uh, uh, that in terms of the form that it takes, but when he had spit on his eyes and put his uh, hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And, uh, and, and the man looked up and said, I see men uh, like trees walking. In other words, he, he can see uh, better than he did before, but his, his, his vision is, is blurred. And, um, and, and then Jesus put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up, and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. And so he went away to his house. Uh, then Jesus w uh, sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town, don't tell anyone uh, in the town. Jesus getting around was, was already crowds enough without uh, this being told. It's the only miracle that we see of healing of Jesus in the Scriptures that was progressive. And it doesn't mean Jesus had like a, like a uh, uh, um, you know, he had kind of a power surge and a decline and, uh, oh boy, I hate that when this happens, I just get him healed halfway and this is going to be so embarrassing in the gospel according to Mark. That's, he could have effortlessly healed him completely. But again, there's just the diversity of Jesus' life, his ministry, his miracles, I think, so that we don't put him in a box and say, this is what uh, God's healing always looks like. And when God does a miracle, it will always look like instantly in one moment in time. And that's not true. Uh, God can heal as he's, he's showing us here. He can heal progressively. All healing comes from God. I, do, I hope you know the doctors aren't accomplishing this. He's created our body. I mean, they can put drugs in it and they can, they can try and get the thing to do what it needs to do, but they've got to work with the body. All healing comes from God, whether it's instantaneous or whether it's gradual, but it all comes uh, from, from Him. And sometimes He does it in an instant, and here is a thing where He can do it progressively. But the healing is still a miracle uh, in, in, in our lives. So this beautiful, uh, again, diversity of the ministry of Jesus. And again, I think because we're so prone to get him down into a formula. And then we develop, what would happen if we could develop a formula related to his healing? Then we wouldn't need him. We would develop a relationship with the formula, and we would no longer need to maintain a relationship with Him, which is what Christianity is all about. And so He does things, these marvelous things that only He can do, but He does them in a way that still forces us to stay close to Him, which is to bless Him, but it's also what is best for ourselves as well. And then... Uh, uh, Jesus, is, uh, uh, he and his disciples, they uh, went to the towns of uh, Caesarea 
Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi located about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, about 120 miles north of, of Jerusalem. It was a pagan site in those, those days, lots of idolatry at Caesarea Philippi. And so he uh, is with his disciples in that northern part of the, the Galilee area. And then uh, as he's on the road there, he asks the disciples, and he poses two questions to them. And the first one is in verse 27. He said to them, who do men say that I am? Uh, and they were very, very quick to answer. Uh, they answered, well, some people think you're John the Baptist, kind of come back from the dead. Others say that you're Elijah because of all the miracles that you're doing. Come back from the dead, and after all, God did say Elijah would come back. And, uh, and others believe that you're one of the prophets. That's, that's the word on the street in terms of, of what people are saying uh, about you. And, uh, and, and it wasn't like Jesus was, was out of the loop in terms of social media and wondering, hey, what's the word out there about, you know, what are they saying about? He knew what everybody was, this was for their, their benefit. So he asked them, who do men say that I am? And this was the answer that they gave. And then he then posed the, 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 uh, the most important question that any, any person will ever answer in the course of our life, uh, the second question in verse 29, and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And he posed that question to them, and Peter answered for all of them, uh, and he said, you are the Christ. And we know a fuller account of this is in Matthew's gospel. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, Jesus then spoke to Peter and said, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, uh, but my Father who is in heaven. And this great commendation. So, uh, here is this, the, the, the ideas of mankind concerning who Jesus was, and, and then uh, Peter gives the correct answer for who he is, and Jesus commends him. Uh, though that is the correct answer to the question, uh, I am the Christ, uh, the Son of the living God. And then he strictly warned them that they should tell uh, no one about him. The thing that has always fascinated me about uh, this exchange that Jesus has with the disciples in terms of the two questions is, I understand the second question. I understand why Jesus would say to anyone, who do you think that I am? Uh, that is, that's the greatest question. Uh, that's the most important question. So why bother with a lesser question of who do men say that I am? And I think the reason that he does that is because he recognizes that we will have to hold the answer, the correct answer to the second question, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. As Christians, we will need to hold that position in a world that even when people think well of him is full of all kinds of ideas and theories about him. Uh, and, and so the idea is that let's not be fooled that you, uh, into, into thinking that you don't hold this correct view of me, of being the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that, that you don't need to hold that view in the midst of a lot of things that people are saying about me. And that's true of all of us. I mean, we all have enough life experience. That it, <laughs> I, it, it, talk to any relative that isn't a Christian, and you ask them, what do you think of Jesus? They'll have an idea that is in, uh, either in line with something like is being said here or something uh, derogatory, 
Everybody's got an idea. All of us as Christians, we hold a correct view of Christ in a world that is filled with ideas concerning Christ. And Jesus is simply telling them and telling us that that's normal. That's the way that it will always uh, uh, be. And so, uh, he, he, he lays that out for them, and, and it, certainly is, it certainly is our uh, experience in our own, in our own life uh, as well. Now, he, he began, Jesus did, to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and uh, uh, be killed, and after three days rise again. So he is continually repeating himself now. He's, he's getting very, very close to Jerusalem and ultimately uh, to die for our sins. And he is trying to prepare the disciples for his, his death. And even though he's telling them very pointedly what it is that's going to happen to them there, when it happened, it's like the biggest shock uh, in the world. Uh, but he is, he is, he's faithful to warn them about the difficult days that were going to await them in Jerusalem. This, all of this would just be inconceivable to the, uh, to the, to the disciples, that he'd be treated, that he would be rejected, uh, not by riffraff, but by the elders, by the Jewish religious leaders, uh, the chief priests, the scribes, and that, that, they're going to, that they're going to kill him, and that he's going to rise again uh, on the third day. It just seemed like it, it just couldn't happen. That wasn't their view of, of what would happen uh, to, to the Messiah, but Jesus prepared them uh, nonetheless. And he spoke his word openly, and then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. <laughs> that can't go well. I've had some conversations with God that are pretty clear. He's very gracious. Like, I'm not getting this at all, <laughs> Lord. I don't have many of them in, uh, you know, since 1980. So it's, it's not my habit to question him in any way, but I have been deeply confused at times by circumstances within, within my life, and not by the ones that you might think about, uh, if you know anything about my life, but sometimes things that, uh, that, you know, that somebody else might look at and say, well, that, that comparatively speaking, that's a small thing, but, but it, it isn't necessarily. But I... I'm, but Peter takes him, and he takes it to another level, and he, he now takes Jesus aside uh, to rebuke him. Now, uh, we, we have to give uh, credit where it's due. The, the positive of it here is that at least he, uh, he rebuked him privately, uh, took Jesus aside. I mean, if you're going to rebuke God, uh, do it privately, not for his sake, but for your sake, because when you, uh, you're going to eat crow, uh, for sure. On, on any situation like that. And so he feels this, you know, he's so impulsive and, and, he, and emotional, and he feels this need to correct Jesus, you know, in terms of, of what he, he, he's, he's saying here. But he, he doesn't want to do it in front of, in front of others, but he knows that he, he needs to, uh, to, to do it. And uh, we know that in Matthew's gospel, it tells us that, it gives us the rebuke that it actually, the, the form that it took when he said, far be it from you, Lord, uh, this shall not happen to you. Uh, don't let this happen to you. This isn't going to happen to you in Jerusalem, dying and uh, rising uh, again. You can't let this happen to you at, at all. It's got to be avoided at, at all costs. And by the way, Jesus, you can't be going around making these negative confessions about yourself in front of the other disciples. They're not as strong as I am. Uh, 
I mean, I'm strong enough to come and rebuke you. Uh, but, but for them, it just hurt, uh, it hurts morale. And, uh, and listen, I know it's a tough time for you in your ministry. We've been stretched a little bit, but you're bigger than this. You're, you, you, you're better than, than to say something like this. And, uh, and of course, it's the, the, the world's worst counsel probably ever <laughs> recorded anywhere because it's the very reason Jesus came into the world was to die on the cross as the full and satisfying payment for our sins, and then uh, to rise again on the third day as an open demonstration of, of, uh, uh, of Jesus accomplishing our justification, our, our forgiveness of our sins, and uh, wiping the slate clean in terms of our, our guilt, and then conquering uh, death and conquering uh, uh, hell. And so, here He, he, he rebukes and… Um, and uh, and when he had turned around and looked then at the disciples, uh, Jesus proceeds to rebuke Peter now publicly, and he said, uh, get thee behind me, Satan. Um, Peter had to, it had to dawn on him at that moment that he had overstepped, uh, you know, his, his bounds and, and had things wrong. Now, Jesus isn't saying that Peter was possessed of the devil, at that moment in time. What he's saying is, is that the words that Peter was speaking here, uh, they, they didn't come from God, as, he, as Jesus goes on to say, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of man. Your thinking is completely dominated by the world as opposed to uh, the Word of, of God. And so Peter, he wasn't helping Jesus with this, uh, his encouragement or his attempt at encouraging or, or rebuking uh, him. And I don't think we help anyone when somebody tells us something hard about their lives or the trial that they're in or the decision that they are making in their life under the direction of the Holy Spirit right in the middle of God's will, and we look at where that decision is going to lead in their life, and it's going to lead into enormous difficulty. Remember, Jesus is, is, is going to suffer at the hands of the religious leaders and be killed and rise again on the third day in obedience to the Father's will for His life. And uh, we have to be careful, I think, when, when we deal with one another and some Christian speaks about the fact that God has called me to do this, He's told me to do this, and we recognize that it's in line with the Word of God, and sometimes our first instinct is to talk them out of it, especially if they're blood, especially the more that we, we love them. Spare yourself. Don't do this. Let it be far from you. Uh, your life and you controlling your life is more important than God's will uh, for your life. Uh, I'll never forget it. And we'll close on this point. We won't finish the chapter just so, so you know. But I, I remember years and years ago, uh, we were, the church was still located down on 10th and F. And a, a speaker was, this was back in the days of cassette tapes, and a speaker had been invited, a missionary had been invited to speak at Big Valley. And, uh, and of course, uh, uh, all, all pastors were all working the same hours. So I couldn't attend it, but I got a hold of a tape of that. And this, this missionary uh, or head of a missionary organization was speaking to the congregation there and he, anybody who would listen to him, and, he, and, he, and he, he declared to the congregation, he said, do you know what the greatest enemy 
of foreign missions is today. I mean, everybody's on the edge of their seat. He's going to give us a revelation of, of what it is. They're coming up, form, they're formulating their ideas. And he said, the greatest enemy to foreign missions today are Christians. And Christian parents who talk their children out of a life of sacrifice and tell them instead to get their career situated and get, uh, get your nest egg situated and then maybe later on in life, then give yourself to this kind of thing. And he said what happens is if they violate God's call upon their life, uh, assuming that call is there, and they miss that window in which they're supposed to operate, they will become very, very successful in whatever field they choose, and they will end up sitting somewhere in some church and be a, a, a good law-abiding Christian within that congregation, but a fire will go out in their life that will be very difficult to, to, to relight. And, and it, one of the hardest things to do with people that we love is to not to talk them out of hard things that God can call them to do and into a life of enormous sacrifice. And the body of Christ advances in this world always on the basis of sacrifice, of some kind, great sacrifice usually, that's the, the, we're not just talking about American Christians. We're talking about Christians as we see them in the entire uh, world. And so, and so uh, Jesus here, he, he speaks and, and he rebukes this idea. Uh, Peter thought he was sparing Jesus and the disciples this kind of uh, leaven or negativity of what Jesus had said. And Jesus looked at what Peter was uh, spreading now among the disciples and says, no, that's the real danger. That's the real danger right there. To start to, uh, my thinking, to be more mindful and concerned about uh, the things of men and the things of this world rather than the things of God. That's what will destroy us, not sacrifice, not hardship. And he goes on to speak about it a little more fully in verse 34 to the end of the chapter, but we'll wait until uh, next uh, time to, to pick that up. So if the worship team would come forward um, and we'll stand together and we'll pray and closing a worship song this evening. I mean, you just think about what we've looked through in just not even a full chapter of Mark's gospel, the broad diversity of it, the beauty of what it reveals to us about, about our Lord and about life, how priceless the Word of God is. Father, we thank you for this time of worshiping you in song tonight and to study your word, and to study the life and the truth and the wisdom of our Savior. We thank you tonight for our Savior. And Father, we are, as uh, your word uh, in, exhorts us to do, we are watching and waiting for your return. We are on tiptoes. We cannot wait as the bride of Christ to to meet uh, our bridegroom one day, and it seems as if that's getting very, very close in the world in which we live. We don't want to have an escapist kind of attitude in, in concerning the week that lies out ahead of us. We don't want to say, you know, to heck with all of this world and all around and just hunker down and, and make it to the end, but we want to be influential for you 
in this coming week. And we pray that you give us power and winsomeness, uh, give us truth and give us wisdom to, to do that and to be that and to say these things in the coming week. We pray that you would lead us and guide us by your Holy Spirit and continue to lead us into your perfect plan for each one of our lives. We look forward to enjoying a week in, under your shepherding and your leading this coming week. We pray that you would bless each one in this room, Lord, as you take us literally hundreds of directions now in this coming week. Bless and keep, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.